Hey, everybody. We're going to have a little chat about writing amazing software focused on developers. Mm -hmm. It would first be helpful for us to kind of understand you. So raise your hand if you're a developer. Keep it up if you're a web developer. Raise your hand if you're a mobile developer. Raise your hand if you're a real developer. I'm just kidding. Uh, raise developer. your hand if you endure developers. There we go. Okay, there we go. There we go. Okay, that's helpful. Thanks. So just to get started, we'll, everybody will sort of introduce themselves, tell you a little bit about what they do, and also tell you why they got into this crazy music technology space to begin with. Howdy, I'm Duke Lito, and I work with Cash Music, and we are a nonprofit. We build open tools that promote artists' sustainability, and I got involved because I needed some more things to fiddle with. There you go. That's a good spot. I'm Sean Porter. I'm the CTO at TicketFly. We build integrated marketing and ticketing systems for uh, some of the world's biggest independent music promoters. So we work with folks like the 930 Club, Austin City Limits, the Troubadour, uh, the Independent here in San Francisco, the Rickshaw Stop, Bimbos, all that good stuff. Uh, I got into this because I found myself going to rock shows all the time. And through a series of uh, uh, strange events, I ended up working with uh, a music promoter and it turned out to be uh, a lot of fun. So here I am in San Francisco uh, seven years later and uh, just still really, really enjoy it. Cool. My name is Aaron. Stagecraft Software is the name of my company. Very small code writing firm here in San Francisco. Um, we do production side stuff, so uh, DJ apps, iPad apps to some degree, but a lot of software for uh, DJs and musicians uh, and making new music. And one of the things lately that I've been really, really interested in is uh, API integration, because especially my side of the spectrum, production side software doesn't have a lot of API integration, so it's a thing that's blowing up that I'd love to talk some more about. Hi, my name is Stephen Phillips. I'm the founder of Hunted Media. We have two companies. We have a website called wearehunted.com, which is a music discovery service that's kind of semi-popular. And we make money through building music apps for other companies. We work with Sony and MTV and MySpace and Def Jam and a bunch of music companies in the US. And we build apps for them, web apps and mobile apps. Hey everyone, my name is Ayumi and I've been working on a startup called Sonic. It's like a digital distribution service for music creation software. So it's basically getting the tools you need to make music in a minute. And I guess I got into the whole thing. I started this EDM club at UC Berkeley called Electronic. It's still going and I've always been a developer. So I've just been trying to find ways to use the skills I've always had and like for my passion, which is electronic music. Great. I think we're going to kind of talk a little bit about our various experiences and then we'll open it up to questions. But the first thing that I always think about is, uh, you know, music as an industry is really tough. It's an irrational market. Supply greatly exceeds demand. So sometimes it's really hard to sort of introduce innovation and bring innovation to music. And I think a, like a really good way of visualizing that is the stuff that, that Aaron works on where you know, 10 years ago it was a DJ, two 1200s, and a stack of vinyl, and now it's you know, a gray box with a glowing apple on it. So Aaron, why don't you talk a little bit more about you know, what you build, why you build it, how it works, what, what's fun about that for you? Yeah, sure. Uh, part of that too is just that we were talking about this before, and it's a lot how uh, 
technologies, you're hitting a moving target a lot nowadays. And I feel like that applies nowhere more than in the music space where we have, well, two things. On the production side of things, we have tremendously more that can be done on the computer. So even 10 years ago, you look at Pro Tools or Ableton or something like that, there was a lot of things that couldn't be done, couldn't be done live, couldn't be done in real time, couldn't be um, immediately accessed. And now most of that's trivial. You know, that's that's not to say that it's hard to write good effects or anything else, but now we've got that all to where it's done and done well, so we can start talking about, well, what do we do now to make it more interesting, to make it more engaging? Like now we have iPads we can put it on and we can make people, you know, everyday people can feel like a music maker, you know, and be a music maker in that you can do these apps where it's not going to mess up and you don't need a lot of skill to figure out exactly what you want to do. So there's, there's kind of been an explosion in what you can do and the way we approach making music. There's also, at the same time, been an explosion in the amount of data available, the amount of metadata surrounding songs, um, the stuff that Steve uses, uh, and on both sides. On the technical side, you have companies like Grace Note and Echo Nest where you can look up what's the key of this song, where are the beats in this song, how are those beats subdivided in this song, what are the lyrics to this song. Um, and then on the user side, you can look up who likes this, where is it trending, what cities in the world you know, is this trending in. Uh, and, and I feel like a lot of that data, we're just figuring out how to utilize that sort of massive amount of data and the massive amount of computer uh, power that we have now. Um, both on my side, it's not, they haven't figured out it out at all. Uh, if you look in Ableton or Pro Tools or any of the rest, the, the, the most API integration they have is like export and save your song to SoundCloud, right? But that's it. And that's a little wizard that will put it on your account at SoundCloud. Um, there's not share this with your friends, see how it's rating, see how it's trending. There's not pull technical data on this song and figure out how we can use that in the production environment. Um, and then on the, uh, it's getting integrated a lot more of course with iPad and uh, web apps are, be, are starting to get really good at using this and of course there's a lot of people at this conference now talking about, and it's been fun to watch over the last few years because I've been coming to this conference for a while. It's been fun to watch how every year there's more and more people talking about how we're gonna use this massive amount of data that's out there to drive discovery, to drive uh, you know, ticket sales, to drive funding for getting music, getting money to the artists. Um, so I feel like it's, it's been a very large changing uh, environment in the last five, six years. I've been doing this for six or seven years. Um, and well, I mean, yeah, I feel like it's a very changing environment. There's a lot of things to talk about with regards to that. Yeah, so with um, with all the sort of integrations and APIs and stuff, that's cool. My, my uh, being a Lego programmer, my, I'm really curious how you make your software really performant. Like how do you, because obviously you can't drop a beat, you can't misread the BPM, you can't do any of this stuff. How do you make it like perfect and work and be production quality and, you know, pump out through the function one sound system and all that stuff? Uh, well, lots of hard work. <laughs> um, Come on, surely there's a shortcut. But, but that, to some degree, <laughs> Um, that, goes back to, that goes back to the power of the software to a large degree. And a lot of those things are black boxed now that didn't used to be. So it used to be you had to write the DSP code in assembly language. You know? Today, if you want a, a Fourier transform, right, which is, a, which is a very technical and hard math and all this other stuff, there's a dozen different libraries you can get to do that. On the Mac side or the PC side, there's ones that you know, span the bridge if you're, if you're developing cross-platform. You can compute it in real time on an Android phone. You know, so compute the pitch that is coming out of my mouth and where the spikes are and where there might be noise and everything else. So uh, 
uh, Retronyms is a good company for that kind of thing, or uh, Smule, right? Smule's one of the first ones to get auto-tune, which is hard, admittedly, but not that hard, to get that algorithm onto a phone and to say, hey, we can you know, make people sound like T-Pain, whoever that is, and we, we can make money with this, and they made a whole lot of money with that. And there's a, there's a lot of kind of potentials and, and, and possibilities there that I think um, those things are quickly more in grasp and have been tested to a higher degree now, which makes it feel like this is the starting of deciding how to use all those things. So, so do you feel like sort of the days of just, you know, busting out your C compiler over, or are you still, that's still part of your day to day? I think it's on the way out. I mean, it feels weird to be, I'm the one C++ guy up here and maybe the only one in the room. Um, there's not a lot of people doing C++ anymore, and that's not to say that it doesn't have a niche or that it's not powerful. The next, I think the next generation of uh, DAWs, right, digital audio workstation, next generation of like Ableton's and things like that, will probably be uh, web-based, will probably be written in Java. Uh, there's one out there now called Ohm Studio, which is an amazing product. It's limited, but it's an amazing product for what it does. You can put, a, you can record and put a whole bunch of stuff and your arrangement, like you were building a song, right? And you're kind of tweaking things on the song. And while you're doing it, other people around the world who might be, have access to this project can be doing the same thing. So a new thing appears, there's a little chat window and a new, uh, new clip appears and it says, hey, here's a really cool beat I saw, let's put this here right about this place and can you tweak the you know, reverb on it or something like that? And you can work collaboratively with people. What was that, what was that Twitter based collaboration with uh, Dead Mouse where the guy like, he tweeted out and the guy like about that. sent a, a, the vocal track back in, yeah. what's it called, The Velt or something like that? Mm -hmm. or, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right that sort of the stuff that you're more used to in the social web, it's kind of going everywhere now. Um, but, but kind of on that same thread of, you know, being technical and uh, either finding things out there that, that work for you that you can sort of draft onto or um, getting, getting, uh, solving things so that you don't have to solve them again. Uh, another theme that emerged in our talks was sort of moving slow to go fast. And what I mean by that is the web's not just, you know, software's not just assuming, subsuming social interaction and all that, but it's also the more traditional functions of how do I keep the server up, how do I make sure that it works, is also now kind of the core concern of the developer as well. So, you know, Duke, I know you had some experience when you started with Cache Music, so why don't you talk sure. about that? Uh, one bit? of the first things I got involved with was, was testing the software, make sure it actually works correctly. Uh, it's it's really valuable when you can make a change and then a few seconds later know that you didn't break some seemingly unrelated component. Um, and it, it feels like you're moving a little slower in the beginning because you're, you're writing additional code to make sure your other, co your other code still works. But that gives you a, an immense amount of agility when your code base grows larger than just a few dozen, a few hundred, a few thousand lines, um, and it always will grow. Uh, code bases don't, or very rarely, get smaller. So those tests only become more valuable as you're, you have more developers, and that gives you agility later on down the line to make even a sweeping change and know that you didn't break your, your core functionality. So it, it is very valuable to go a tiny bit slower in the beginning so that you can go faster later on. Can I, can I make like a really brief point? Yeah. There's this thing floating around Silicon Valley called test-driven development. I think it's, it's not like bad, but I think <laughs> we need to clarify like writing tests to cover your tracks is like really important when you're writing anything. But test-driven development sometimes is not appropriate, especially when you're iterating just to get your MVP. Like 
basically, if you don't know what people want, does it really make sense to go really slowly? You, sure, you, sure. you stole my counterpoint. Um, no, I totally agree. I, I think like test-driven development is great if you know what you're supposed to build. But if you're still figuring that out, um, which in my experience is most of the time, uh, like why write tests for something you don't know that works right or mm -hmm. doesn't, doesn't don't work? Don't write right. a test that your button is red today and when you're going to want to change the button to be green next week. That's not a very useful test. But uh, writing a test to make sure, for instance, that your DAW doesn't corrupt the MP3, like that's a really valuable test that will, will be valuable yeah, no just, matter what you're you doing. Just download it again, right? <laughs> um, no, but uh, Yumi, you had a similar experience with doing some kind of custom system ops level mm -hmm. stuff at Sonic, mm -hmm. so why don't you talk about that? Yeah, so during Sonic, uh, one of the things that had to be built out was a way to push patches to users, because what Sonic did was let people download software from the cloud. And we didn't want to have them re-download an entire copy of, say, a DAW when a small update came out. So basically, the patching library we chose to use was kind of this really custom, really nice library, but it wasn't available by default on most Linux distributions, meaning like if you use Heroku, which makes it really fast to get out code, you couldn't use that. You had to kind of tweak it, and you couldn't customize it with Heroku. So basically, I made this initial investment, which was actually pretty substantial, to set up an EC2 server totally from scratch. Like, I didn't know how to do this. But as a result of doing that, like, I've gained so much sysadmin experience. And additionally, we have like the server running on which we can put other internal APIs. And it's really useful to have internal tools that you can kind of separate out from your project because you can usually reuse things like that. Back in my day, we had to order servers from Sun and walk uphill in the snow with no shoes to the data center to install them. Um, Don't forget about the magnetic tape drive. Oh, the magnetic tape drive. When was that? Let's not go down there. Uh, 1990. What's that? What was that? What year was that? Oh, uh, boy. 95? It was a while ago. Um, and another thing, kind of on the same topic with TDD and being test driven and you know d doing all that stuff, um, I read this nugget from Donald Knuth. If you don't know him, he is the author of the art of uh, the the art of computer programming, which is this three volume epic. They're, the fourth might be out now. He's trying to get like seven out, but he's also um, like 75, and he very famously replies to his email twice a year, so I'm not sure if he's gonna get there, but this is this is programming. This is like data structures and sort algorithms. You wanna talk about bubble sorts versus you know ON and all that other stuff that real programmers know about that I don't. Um, he's your guy. But he said that uh, premature optimization is the root of all evil, which, uh, I found to, to, to almost be the case. In my own personal circumstances, talking about the servers that I ordered from Sun um, and carried to the data center in the snow. The, the you know, I, I thought, okay, man, I'm gonna do the startup, it's gonna be great, we're gonna sell tons of tickets, I need a lot of servers, we're gonna buy a bunch of servers. I s probably bought 20 servers that I didn't need for two years. Um, I would have been much better spent in taking that same money and hiring another developer to help me. So 
You know, that's, that's definitely a, a lesson that I've learned the hard way. And it's a, it's a hard balance. It's like, you know, you don't want to be caught without the tools that you need, but at the same time, you don't want to overbuy or overdo it or over-complexify things, or product team, whatever. Um, and Steven, I think you have some battle scars around that particular topic, too, that might be helpful to, to talk about with us. Is that a segue? Let, us, let, it, let it all out. This is a safe place. <laughs> I've got many battle scars of sites going down. We, um, yeah, so I've been in, I've been building websites for 20 years. Most of them are crap, and most of them don't exist anymore, as every other web developer will tell us. I love your optimism. I think I've got one that actually worked and people like, and it's still up, which is good. And it's transformed my life and my family and my friends who've all left Australia and came here and came to New York and came to San Francisco. And it's been crazy. I had, I think it's my fourth company. I've been a, a whole series of startups that have failed and I ended up in music for some reason, which was bizarre because I started in the stock market and ended up here about five years ago. I um, had my first child. I was taking some, I worked at a bank in Sydney. I was, I'd always done machine learning and I had this idea that um, my wife, who's a trader, was spending all night on these forums and trying to work out what people were saying. And I said, look, I'll just scrape that forum and tell you what they said overnight and you can buy the stocks in the morning. And she said, oh, can you do that? I said, yeah, I can do that. And I thought, yeah, I can do that. And I did it. And people flipped, they loved it. And within about a week, this is in Australia, there was about, I had 100,000 people subscribe to this newsletter thing that would tell you what people were saying on these stock forums overnight. And I so sold that, that company to they, a bank. Do they call that big data now? Is they do. They it, was, right. um, it was pretty basic stuff, but no one was really doing it. We were doing it, I was doing it for the bank at the time to scrape the interest rates off all the other sites so they could, the bank knew when they should change their rates. And I thought I'd do it for stock. And I met these two kids, they were 20 year olds from EMI. And at this conference thing where I was talking about stocks and they said, um, look, we've got this problem where we can't, uh, oh, we're supposed to do licensing for these indie bands and all of them, they don't sell any music so we don't know how to value them to, to brands and stuff. So could you tell us, but we know they're popular because we go to gigs and there's lots of fans and stuff. And so they asked me to come up with a chart of what the most stolen music was in Australia today. And so I did that and they published it and people loved it. It was really bizarre. It was, it was so different to the top 40 stuff that was there. Um, and we launched it and I woke up one morning of, it was on the homepage of TechCrunch and Wired and blah, 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 everywhere. And it was crazy. And then I thought, oh, I should do something about music. And I realised that all the good... That's probably not the right thing to was say. Was it done with the blogs when you started with it? When you started no, he did it with Torrance first. And then we realised mm -hmm. that the, what people were stealing was pretty much what people were buying. And we moved on to blogs about a month into it. So Hunted Today, our goal is to work out of the songs that were released in the last couple of days what the best ones are and put them in front of you in an easy way that you can consume them. And we do it by scraping music blogs. Um, and it's grown and grown. It's been really cool. It's been a big surprise to me and my team. And um, now I'm here and talking about shit about tech and stuff. So what, in doing that, what sort of resistance did you encounter? Like with, well, with the algorithm, be, algorithm being all-knowing and all-seeing, 
where, where, did, where did the doubts come from? My big problem was I raised three million bucks from these investors in Sydney to do a finance stock market thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I told them that I thought that was a silly idea that we should do something in music. And they all thought that was a pretty silly idea because every investor knew that the music, even these guys knew that you don't invest in music in 2008 or whatever it was. So, you, yeah, you were, uh, but dad, I don't want to go to college, I want to start a band. <laughs> it felt a bit like that. <laughs> but we got sued by a finance organisation in Australia and that helped the problem for me. That they started to copyright, um, the, all the forums all started to copyright their stuff. And really there was only two in Australia that were doing it. And so it solved my problem for me. I had to get out of that industry and move into music. And it's been good since. And sort of what was, so you, you sort of, this came out of a genesis and talking with the EMI folks. What, what was the evolution of that? Like how did it, once you got it up and running, were they excited about it? Were they not excited about it? Were they... You know, how did that, how did that evolve? So we had Once it started, you know, it started with the young kids that were super jazzed and then it sort of moved up the managerial chain. What was that experience like? We put it live and people loved it from day one. It was crazy. I've launched heaps of sites and all of them sucked. Like, no one cared. Like, that's <laughs> what happens when you launch sites. People don't care. And you have to work so hard. This one, like, it was crazy. People loved it. It was bizarre. Like, I'd never seen anything like it. And we knew that there was... And I'm explaining to investors that people like this, and they still do. Like, people I've never met, those guys come up and talk to me about it, and it's bizarre. Like, I've never... We just... There's, we're four Aussie guys who code this stuff, and people <laughs> really like it. It's bizarre. And we know that it's right, you know? You know that it's... There's something there, and we don't really try and... We're, we're too old to second-guess it, or... We've tried to recreate it and did other things that sucked after it, too. So we ended up... <laughs> you, you continue like to... Once. Yeah, that's right. And then we circle back, and... Um, it seems to... I think the simplicity of it, and people love yeah. finding... It's an easy problem to solve, too, because people... You don't have to be... If someone looks at ten songs and they find one they love and it's something that's a new artist and a song that they love, they think it's awesome. They can, you can get it wrong nine out of ten times. And if they find one that they love and they buy it, they think you're the best thing ever because, you know, it's that nothing like music to deliver that emotional connection. Yeah. So, so the moral of the story is to make money, you start in finance and move to music. <laughs> that's, that's good. You tell tell well, the Keep it simple. That, uh, keep it yeah. simple, too, though. Yeah. You've got to solving a very simple problem and you're not trying to do a million other things, you know? It's like the Craigslist guys here that get pressed every couple of years that they should go public and they should go bigger and they should... It's like four guys wrote a, wrote a Pearl website and it was very, very, very simple. And it just said, post what you want to sell and, you know, we'll see if anybody comes and, and buys it. And, you know, their logo is still the peace sign with their fave icon. It's just, they're not interested in expanding or making it big. They found one thing that worked out really well and solved a simple problem, you know? Well, I think Craigslist is getting left behind now. Oh, no. Who are they getting left behind by? Well, because people are scraping Craigslist, and Craigslist is like, no, can't do that. Uh. It's actually like, like pretty big. There's one site that was just aggregating. So we're talking about big data, right? There's a site called 3Taps that aggregates Google search results as well as Craigslist and a bunch of their postings, and they got like sued. And basically, since they were selling this data to clients, all their clients got sued too. So it was like Craigslist was really serious. But actually, since then, they've been like, they've been trying to change the site. I don't know if anyone's noticed, but 
Craigslist has been doing things. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, it all came from the PadMapper app, right? Somebody basically I built... I love PadMapper. I'm very sad that they got sued. Yeah, they built this great app, but it's like, I want to find an apartment in San Francisco. I want to pay this much. I want to live in these places, and it maps it on the map for you. And, you know, Craigslist was definitely the counterexample of, like, you know, it's the, what's the old quote about information wants to be free, but they always leave off the second part, but rent wants to be paid, where Craigslist said... Hey, you know, it's great that you guys want an API. It's great you want to do all this stuff. It's great that you want to interconnect. Not interested. That's not how yeah. we make our money. That's not how we do our thing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's definitely, it's definitely the opposite of, uh, and, and there's always that fine line in how do you build a big enough ecosystem but continue to make money on it, uh, which, you know, I think is something that you guys, sharing. At, at, you know, Cash Music is a nonprofit discuss um but 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 you know you guys are a nonprofit, and so maybe talk a little bit about that and i and, and i think you were really um in our earlier talk brought up some good points about being an open source project your end user isn't just the band or the person using the tool but it's also other open source contributors and so you said we, I had to work to make it 10 times easier than it was to submit or contribute or to, to work with us. So yeah, uh, talk more about that. I come from the open source world and you have to think about how easy is it for someone to come to this project, not know anything about it and make them useful, uh, make them feel like they are uh, contributing value in a short period of time. Because people don't have huge swaths of time to, to volunteer to make something better. They, they have a kind of a flash of, of inspiration or energy and they, they want to do something, but you have to make it easy. You, you have to have nice little carved up tasks that say uh, you're, you're new to this thing X and here's something that you could do to, to improve it. And that is very important. Uh, and if you're inside the project, it's almost impossible to know how hard it is to come into the project as a as an outsider. So one of the kind of random quotes that, that I said was, you probably need to make things about 10 times simpler than you, you think you need to make them to, to get contributors to, to come on board and, and do good stuff. And Stephen, you had a sort of a similar tone with just what, the, what We Are Hunted did, like what the product did. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so we had, uh, I think we did about we never really moved the needle for about a year and a bit on 150, 200,000 people would go there every month. And no matter what we did, and we added features, and, and we kind of realised that people just never, people liked the chart, and that's all that they actually wanted to do was play with the chart. So we decided to get rid of everything but the chart and then put the chart in as many places as we could. Um, we put it in Winamp, and it, that delivered, doubled our traffic within four weeks. Or, then we put it inside Spotify and a million people got use it every day, uh, every month in Spotify and so it's been really good for us. We've been putting our chart wherever people want to listen to new music and um, it's really cool. It's um, easy marketing. People come to us and they want our chart and they stick it in their own products and put throw it, throw traffic at it. It's pretty bizarre. And, and I think you guys, I mean, from my own observation over the last couple of years, you've always been very design forward. You've always really pushed design. And I think that definitely ties in with what we're talking about, about make it simple, make it easy. How do you, what's kind of being on the developer side of the developer-designer divide, what, uh, 
what, what's your perspective on that? Well, I suppose we've just, we're so surprised that design's so poor in music, as in we just expect it as outsiders that um, coming in that all the best, well, you've got the most creative people in the world who are making stuff, and yeah, all the design sucks with most of the stuff. <laughs> and we, we were just like, it should, you've got these beautiful photos and great music, and just, just show the photos and let people listen to music. What do I need to do other stuff? And um, yeah, I just find that there's, they'll spend millions on a video clip, yet they'll just have really boring sites. It's amazing to me. Um, we don't spend, um, we've been lucky enough to work with a lot of people in design over the last year and see what everyone's building. And I think that they're all getting a lot better really quickly now. And next, the year that's coming, everybody's releasing new stuff and that all looks really good. And it's a, a cool time for music. I, I, well, I haven't got much history, but it seems like a good time to be a music fan online. Yeah. Um, and and kind of just maybe the last thing to talk about, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit, Ayumi, about astroturfing and tuneup.fm <laughs> or AKA fake it till you make it. Sure. So this is the problem that everyone who's making a product runs into. It's how do you get users? It's like if you don't have users, especially if your product is viral, if you don't have the initial like base of users, there's just no way you're gonna get off the ground. So I just have this pretty small fun story about TuneUp, which is just this thing that uses the YouTube API, and it's just it's like a way to browse music on YouTube. You know, like friends post stuff on your wall on Facebook, but I always wanted to way a way to collect those and just share them again and just kind of like rank those songs, save them in playlists. Basically, this site didn't have very many users, but then like, I would just seed it with like, like so many songs, like 10, 20, 30 new songs every day. So pretty soon, I, I like forced my best friends to do this too. And it was kind of like, when people see there's activity happening, they're like, this must be a cool thing, right? We gotta get on this. So if you keep doing that, eventually it becomes true, right? Once everyone believes in this, reality you're projecting to them, they'll just be like, yeah, this is a pretty cool site. And actually, this is the way that Reddit started. So Reddit is one of the most popular websites out there today. And the way they got started was the founders all created like 10 ghost screen names, and they would just engage in like fake discussion with each other and submit links. So people coming to Reddit would be like, wow, this is this amazing site. People are having such interesting discussion. But in reality, it's just like the four co-founders just like bantering Fake Isn't, identities. I thought that's what Reddit still did today. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. That's dick. Um, okay, well, I think I'm just going to go ahead and open it up for questions. Does anyone have any questions? Questions. Please don't so many questions. make me do my Steve Ballmer impersonation. <laughs> it involves a lot of sweating. That man over Yes. There. Mr. Payne. We have to repeat your question, speaking into the mic. So if I heard you correctly, you said VCs look at music, view it as the boulevard of broken dreams, and decide that their money could be better placed elsewhere. Exactly is that, is that correct? Um, yeah, what do you, who wants to chime in on that? Well, I'm curious. When uh, I guess that's, it's a very broad statement if you just say music companies in general. And, and you know, if you go out and you say, oh, I've got this, uh, this social entrepreneurship platform or this you know, social engagement platform or whatever, that can still be a music platform. So it, 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 maybe that's uh, an unfair statement. I don't know who maybe said that. Um, but yeah, Steve had mentioned it earlier, and I think it's, 
um, a safe bet that right when you sort of say, oh, we want to do something in music, it's like, well, it's kind of a sexy industry, you know what I mean? So, so people are, well, if it's stylish, we kind of, we're not as interested as if it's, you know, cold hard data and things that we can look at in a business uh, sense. But you would, you would probably have more to say than that than I, Steve. Um, I tried to, I just came out of a thing with, in New York of months of meetings and stuff and we, we funded, we, I ran out of money 18 months ago and I funded the company, we're, we're probably 10 up to 20 over the last 10, 12, 18 months going up and down as we needed guys um, and we funded it by building stuff for other people. We saw it as a way of um, not having to dilute ourselves even more because we were all diluted anyway. Um, and also, we thought it was crazy that these music companies, I shouldn't say that in case any of my clients are in the room, but um, these, cra these music companies were, getting, were making my team better while their own guys were, they were giving us all the cool problems to work on, like music discovery and recommendation platforms and stuff, because um, we were perceived to be good at it, but we were learning like everybody else was. And so, yeah, I funded it that way. I, I, I haven't seen, in New York it was easy enough to, um, everyone seemed to be doing all right. Like the big companies seemed to be raising. SoundCloud did, and everyone I knew who I've met, all the founders, they all seemed to raise okay. So it doesn't seem like there's that huge a problem. In I know I don't know about smaller rounds and stuff, but now it seems like uh, I don't know. The I think that the Deezer just raised a, sh a lot of money, and Spotify and then just raised more money than God, didn't they? So yeah. someone's. Um, haven't, yeah, Echoness just raised again, so everyone seemed to do pretty well, I think. So it feels like there's money around. Okay. Amy, you had... Yeah, I, I have like just a few thoughts. I think there's still money to be made in the music industry. So it's true that CD sales may have gone down, but digital sales have been going up crazy fast, and people have still been going to concerts a lot. And with just with Facebook, it's been a lot, a lot easier to find indie artists to patronize, so I think the money is definitely in there. It's harder to get funding without traction these days for music. You can't just pitch some idea and say like, we have this team, you need to actually prove that you have followers on, like, on Twitter, you need to have likes on Facebook. You need just to demonstrate that people are actually deriving value from your thing. But I think at the end of the tunnel, the point of getting funded is to just capture some of that money in the industry and the money is still there, and it's growing, I think. I don't think, uh, as coming from the nonprofit world, your, your question kind of is not directly applying, but... He's above it. <laughs> I'm not Zero above right. it. I'm not next to it or aside from it. But, um, yeah, I think maybe the person that, that you heard speak is maybe got burned and is speaking from personal experience, but there's, there's still a lot out there and it's maybe in a different place than it used to be. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, music's, music's sort of inherent power, which is that it definitely sort of short circuits. M music touches you, right? Music, you're very passionate about it. You have a very immediate response to it, um, which is why it's just so tremendous and we all love it. But I think that can sort of cloud judgment and the VCs maybe having gone through this a few times knows that they don't want to confuse passion with, with money. Um, for you know, for us at, at Ticketfly, I think what's 
interesting, I, I read this quote, uh, or this article by Kevin Kelly, one of the original uh, founding editors at Wired, and he basically said, look, the internet is the world's perfect copy machine. So if you want to make money, don't build things that can be infinitely copied. So at, at Ticketfly, we, we employ all these tools and we're, you know, we employ sort of digital tools for analog experiences, but you know, the, the divine fits are playing in Austin tonight and nowhere else. Um, so for us, that's been, you know, the, the internet's been tremendous, but the way that we ultimately monetize, which is to have people buy tickets and go to the show, is still a very, um, uh, you know, sought after or a very constrained Unique. quantity of, yeah. of things. Um, so that's my take on it. Sir. I was at that panel before and that comment was made by someone who's known to be a bit cynical. Um, huh. Instagram destroyed funding companies. Uh, music companies are getting funded, but what's out there now is this notion that nine people can get a billion dollars. Um, well, and 500 million adjusted after certain... Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, no, I, I think having just gone through this, hardware companies are not being funded. Uh, music software companies are in fine shape, but there's this fairy tale out there now in the VC land that, like you said, you build, you, you go to VCs with some sort of user base and some sort of way to make your product viral. And you will get funded if it's music, if it's porn, if it's anything, because they're, everyone's looking porn. for the next in Instagram. But put a piece of hardware in the equation and no one will look at you. Unless they're headphones, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think we had another question in the back. Young Lemmy, AKA Crystal. Yeah, so I was really interested in sort of engineers and product managers and so forth. We always try to add more features because that's what we do and it's really simple and you just, that, this would be neat to have and that would be neat to have. But we all know that the best design is the one where there's nothing left to take away. So I was really interested in hearing your guys' insight on how to keep it simple while you have all of these amazing ideas. Hire someone who's not too close to the product to stand a little bit further away from it and tell you, you know, we're doing one thing and only one thing and don't add features. I mean, it's very hard because I think uh, as an engineer you do, you want to add you want it to do everything at the end of the day, and you want to keep adding features and stuff, and it, it just will never get there. Others? Well, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like Michelangelo. I don't sculpt. I just remove the unnecessary marble, right? Um, I mean, for me, I'm really proud that kind of the, one of the core flows of Ticketfly is building an event, and since I've been there, we've reduced, we've taken two-thirds of it away. We've made it a lot smaller. I don't, you know, I think there's definitely a difference between agency, what people can do, and complexity. Um, so just like one really small example, for uh, when I started at Ticketfly, when you wanted to add a band to your show, you had to upload their photo and bio and all the stuff right there in the event build. And we pulled that all out into a master database of artists that could be shared across all the promoters. So the net result was that we still were able to deliver this great content-rich marketing uh, you know, because everybody wants a really, lots of great content and they want to spend no time finding it or getting it or whatever. But we were able to do that in a way that like actually simplified their life and made it better. So 
I don't, you know, I, I, I agree with you that, that um, you know, it's kind of featureitis, like, uh, and, and I call that sort of the Excel school of product development. Just add another table, add another box, add another checkbox, add another column um, is really the easiest way to do it. So you have to be very, the way that I found that it works the best is to have this very consistent internal philosophy on how the product should relate to the person using it and what they can expect and having these patterns that sort of flow through all of it. But I don't, I don't necessarily think that means that you put a limit on the power or what it can do, um, but you just need to be very, you know, the product has to have a voice and it has to be very clear. Just say, concentrate on what's really important instead of what's easy to get done because it's very easy to just do what's easy, but it's not very useful. So it's a meta answer of, of sort. Other questions? You guys are managing an artist. What lessons and behaviors from being a startup and working with software development, if you were the manager, would you um, take across, like if you had one key learning, you could take across to then become a manager? For artist management? Yeah, from the experiences of software development and building a start a company well, from scratch. Yeah, it's 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 funny, right? Because I've I like, I've known people that got very meticulous about making their next album, right? And spent like a year and a half and and really kind of micromanaged every little piece of it. And it feels like the wrong approach. Just in a similar way to like adding as many features as you can feels like the wrong approach. You know, just like you want to have a very simple UI and a stated purpose and one thing you're trying to get across, I feel like artists get bogged down in minutia sometimes and don't, um, don't focus on we're going to do this one style and just capture a moment and have this one nice album and put out a little album art and then we're going to try to do the festival circuit for the, for the spring. You know, it's having that sort of clarity of vision is helpful in any, in any part of life, I would think. Yeah, I think, it's, I think there are a lot of interesting parallels um, you know if, if you compare sort of artists to engineers right just just like on the tech side you have VCS giving uh, product companies software companies a ton of money you have labels giving bands tons of money to get off the ground ten years ago um, but you know the role of the manager is not dissimilar from the role of maybe the product manager in software right so just just to your point like the engineers I think um, you always have to strike that balance between what's artistically or technically beautiful and what are we trying to do and when are we trying to do it by and how do we be realistic about about shipping it I mean I'm always amazed like as hard as uh, you know as hard as the software guys think that we have it like you know, man, I'm, my MacBook Air is two years old now, and you know, my 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 third world uh, or, or my third wave coffee is a little cold. It's nothing compared to a band. I mean, a band is like four smelly guys in the back of a Ford Econoline van driving from Lawrence, Kansas to Omaha, Nebraska. That is not a very uh, fun life. So, my my thought is like, what can the manager do? The manager's job, just like the product manager's job is to keep everybody focused, right? And keep everybody focused on, yes, we wanna have the world's most amazing uh, string matching library. We don't need to do that. We don't need to spend three months doing that. 
um, or we want to have the best you know, effect on here, but we're not going to spend eight grand on the pedal to do that or whatever. So I think the role of the manager is to edit. The role of the manager is to edit, and the role of the manager is to say, okay, I know you want to do this. I know why you want to do it. I see your point, but here's our goals and our objectives and what we're trying to do. So how do we bring those two things together in a, in a harmonious way? I think it's totally like a band. I think we've, I know my guys feel like a band all the time. The guys, the five of us, have worked together on and off for 20 years and we feel like we, when we're building stuff, I know we're better at building stuff than nearly everyone we meet because we've worked together and it's shorthand. Like, I can go, this is what they want. One day we don't even meet. They just take their bit and go. And He's the ops guy and he's the database guy. And the designer will do his bit and we don't even really have to talk. It's bizarre. But we've just done it for so long. And it feels like, and it feels like a band. It feels like we had a hit and you keep playing the same song yeah. every night. And when you come out with the next album, you try and work out what people liked about it and don't do anything too crazy. And just try and get better at what people think that they liked. And I would, I suppose, my, if I was my, I couldn't manage a band, but I'd tell them to keep trying, really. Because it's, um, you know, if you, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. As in, I think I tried to leave the web industry a few times, but if you're either in it or you're not, and once you're in, you have to stay in, because I'll be doing it until I die, I suppose. I hope so. Anybody else? Any other questions? That might be good. Okay. I think that's it. Thanks, guys.